Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. I do think the easiest way in is through the individual students and again looking at what, you br- what you've done and talking about that. It's very, very simple. So it could be a half-hour conversation. I mean, we, we went into this knowing that one caring person can make all the difference in a young person's life. You, I'm sure, know that from your experience as a CASA and just doing the work that you do. Um, I also would want people to know that it's that small act is part of a much bigger picture that we're helping manage, and that's kind of the good news. It's And that's that's... A hard part of our work to manage all the people who there are a lot of people who want to sort of plug in I think we're really good at making reciprocal relationships and connections so again I'll know someone was a nurse and loves talking about nursing so I'll connect them to a nursing student I know someone's looking for a cause and we'll talk to them or you know maybe left a big job and is now looking for the next chapter and We'll share what we're doing, and then they become a board member. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works... I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Everly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Rami Lasali and Patrick McCabe, the founders of Ready to Succeed a program that supports college-bound students who are impacted by foster care, or scholars, as they like to call them, by helping them get into school, stay in school, and flourish after school with resources, relationships with passionate professionals, career coaching, and so much more. Here's Rami Lasali and Patrick McCabe. Okay, hi. I am here with Rami Lasali and Pat McCabe. Hey, kids, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Okay. Hi, so can you tell me how you met? Pat, you take this one. Uh, we have a wonderful mutual friend uh, named Abby Adams, and uh, we were just both at a point in our lives where we were both uh, recovering business people, so to speak, and uh, we're just at a cross-section in terms of what to do moving forward. And we both had an interest, a big interest in sort of foster and homeless issues as it related to high school and college students. And uh, Abby was aware of that. And she brought us together about eight years ago right now. So we're coming into the eighth anniversary of Ready to Succeed. Right. And you're the co-founders of Ready to, to Succeed. So, so Rami, can you tell me a little bit about what, uh, what kind of work you do together? Sure. Um, well, thanks, Pat, for that intro about our intro, because it was a really fortuitous moment. So we we give a big shout out to Abby for making the introduction. So the program has evolved a lot in the past eight years, but it is currently a program really focused on really incredible students who are in college, foster youth and first generation students. And these are the 4% now, the stats off change. (laughs) They're pretty fluid, but it's now up to about 4% of foster youth who graduate college. And both Pat and I realized that it was an incredible feat, a Herculean feat that these kids had made it so far, but that there really wasn't support while they were there. So our program really addresses that. And we have a five-pillar program. We focus on really intensive career coaching and and college advising. And we're almost personal career navigators for for each one of our students who's assigned someone right when they start the program, normally a sophomore, rising sophomores in college. We 
really focus on building their social capital, not just teaching them how to network or you know, how, to, how to walk into a room, but, but putting people in their path. So Pat and I, one of the things we did when we first met was to say, what's the formula for success? What worked for us? What, what worked for our kids? And we thought, God, if we could give that to these young people, that would really be incredible. And so we realized they don't have inherited networks, right? They don't come into this with, you know, parents who know anyone or people who, who know other people who might be able to help. So we really focus on network building, tapping into our own networks initially, and then watching that network expand exponentially so that students can meet these people, they become the basis for their networks, and then they in turn, when they graduate, become the network for the undergrads. Um, we focus on internship placement because we know that it's such a paradox that you have to have a job to get a job and to get a job you have to have had a job and that really comes down to internships and again foster youth don't have access to these opportunities so we make sure to provide those uh, targeted financial support in the form of money for, to cover basic needs to cover career development whether it's certification classes or clothing or again unpaid internships we cover those um, we make sure we have a network of other partners for all the other things that come up whether it's housing, mental health resources. Um, am I missing anything, Pat? No, that's, that's a lot. Okay, that's a lot. I know. Well, you know what? We realize kids, young people need a lot, so our program has to do a lot. And I think what makes us unique is that we realize that you can't do it right any other way, to be honest. Like, it's, it all has to be done. It really all has to be done to, to have success. And even then, it, there's no guarantee, but it, it's definitely... I think helps the people we work with get, get as close to it as possible. It's clear that you have been speaking about this a lot, so, and you're doing it really well. And I'm, I know our listeners will appreciate that because a lot of the people who listen to the podcast either have been in the system or they're curious about what is happening in the system and they're considering getting involved. And I think what's difficult for people to understand is what these kids need. And you guys have been zeroing in on it. You've used your expertise in the for-profit world to figure out what works and what can we implement, what is sustainable, what else do we need, right? So it's not just a question of, of uh, making sure their dorm rooms look good, although that's really important too. When a kid comes out of the system and they are, they're in college for the first time, they have nothing, right? There's no blankets, there's no curtains, there's no pillows. Um, but they also need the other tools to get them through college and then into a productive life. And you guys have actually really thought about that. So did you study it or did you just like, are, have you been winging it and doing it well or what? Uh, well, we come from slightly different places in that um, also, as well as being a businessman, I was the head of a school for 12 years. And at that school, New Road School, where I am one of the co-founders, we had a program where we were placing high-performing, high-school-age foster youth into private and parochial schools, including our own school here in Los Angeles, Santa Monica, our sister school, Crossroads School, Harvard, Westlake, Brentwood, Marlboro, Archer. These are high-end, mostly white prep schools on the West Side. And 100% of these students in our program into these schools were graduating high school. 100% were going to college. 100% were graduating college. The very first youth I worked with at 13 years old, we put him in the Brentwood School nearby here, and he's now on our board awesome. and ready to succeed. He's 34 years old, and he's a director at Verizon in, the, in Washington, D.C. So I never, never suspected that they would struggle academically because they were very gifted kids, but I always felt they would struggle sociologically, that they'd end up at USC sitting next to a young woman in class who's who's family had a private plane and they were lit, came out of a group home. So my orientation was always to help those kids. I'm in touch with a lot of them. Rami knows that. But I always wondered what happened to them on move-in day where they didn't have, where they brought all their possessions in a plastic trash bag or what happened to them on parents weekend where they didn't have parents and their peers were going out to dinner to some nice place at, at, near the university and they were hiding in the library. So that was really my orientation. And, but there was an element of starting it up and being a little naive about just being a career accelerator, that there were all these other issues, mental health, uh, housing, 
a, a mere transportation, a myriad of things. So I think we've come in eight years, we've really come a long way. Yeah. I, I mean, thank God what Pat had his, the expertise working with foster youth. I had had zero. So when you asked me about winging it, there was a lot on my part, there was a lot of winging it. Um, as Pat said, we were a little naive. We thought we could bring this really high level coaching program, which was kind of the basis. I mean, I get stepping back even before that, we thought, We'll make introductions. We'll we'll go to our friends. We'll make introductions to. The, we'll find the students. Let's start there. We'll meet them, regardless of where they are. And when we started, we had six students who were most of them were seniors. It was May, and we were thinking we're going to get them jobs in June, right? I think it was that short a time span that we thought we could actually do what we set out to do, and that we would introduce them to people and opportunities. That's what really what we thought. We quickly realized, I think, after that first summer, that coaching was really important. So although we had the opportunities, some of these students weren't, I mean, nobody could really be as ready to walk through the doors as we were hoping they might be. So we introduced a really, again, a very high-level coaching and communications program through a woman who was introduced to us by an incredible advocate and donor now, Justine Stamen. And she said, I want you to meet my friend Lucy. She's a communications coach. She's amazing. She wants to volunteer. Again, a bit naive thinking this program, which worked for Fortune 500 executives, was going to work for younger students. It, it did. And we've modified it now. So it really works beautifully. But as Pat said, those three pieces were great. But whoa, what about everything else that comes up? So we can have a job or a person who works at Google, as Pat always says. But if you don't know where you're living when you graduate or, you know, for a Christmas break, you can't be thinking about that. Yeah, it's, it's just too overwhelming, right? That when, when you have to figure everything out on your own. So I want to ask you, what kind of background did you have, Romy? What, what was your early life, your, your family of origin? Uh, good question. Um, I was, I'm an only child. I was, my parents divorced when I was three. I was raised primarily by my mom, who was a single working mother. And I, I, I had lots of love, but not a lot of support, um, just because my mom was working. And so I do feel like I did have to do a lot on my own and became pretty good at it, in, you know, all through school. And, and while I was in college, I spent a lot of time in the career center because I think I was really worried, I know I was really worried about what would happen after. So I, that, I think that's like some of the genesis of my connection to this work. That's interesting. So you, even as a young girl, you thought, okay, how am I going to get to where I want to be? Absolutely. As opposed to just living your life and playing sports and swimming and, and, and playing with lipstick nope. and reading <laughs> books. You said, no, I, I, I'm going to have to figure it out because maybe no one else will. Yeah, pretty much. And it, I think it was also generational. I think, I don't know what, what Pat has to say about this, but parents seem to be much less involved in their children's lives as I was growing up, whether they had multiple siblings or very connected parents. It's, it did seem like you're kind of, go figure it out, go to the career center. Maybe someone will make an introduction to someone, but I don't know if I was completely alone in that. Right. And how did you realize your dreams career-wise? How did it, how, like what happened in your 20s and your 30s? I, I think, it, it's, I, think it, it, I know it started while I was in college. I was, again, spending a lot of time in the career center and I thought, hmm, what do I want to do? And I, I, I had an interest in entertainment and my mother had worked sort of tangentially in the entertainment business. She was the um, secretary for Sherwood Schwartz who created the Brady Bunch. Just, th you know, plug for the Brady Bunch here. Wow. <laughs> and my mom. And my mom. <laughs> but that was it. That was all I knew. And, and I, um, I just pursued different opportunities, had an idea about one company I wanted to work for, got a job there. It was a pretty big casting company. And I happened to walk across this 20th Century Fox. It was still the 20th Century Fox lot one day and bumped into someone or I was delivering a script to someone who said, oh, there's an opportunity working for an executive here. And that really was one of those critical inflection points where I said, okay. And I took that job as an intern and then it, I had an opportunity to, to take it as a full-time job. And I said to my mom and my stepdad, I'm going to leave college. I was still 
a senior in college, and they were not happy. <laughs> but I did it anyways. I'm sure partly out of fear, like, whoa, what's a degree going to do for me? I really think I'm on my path now. And I did have a very nice career in the entertainment business. I also did go back to UCLA and graduate in 2013, many, many years after my original. Wow, as a grown woman, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I feel like... You can say you can say that you became a senior vice president at Disney if you'd like. Yeah. And then I did. I've, I had a really nice career in the industry. I like I said, started in casting, worked in development, was, I did have a, you know, nice executive positions. I then, I was married, I was got pregnant, I had to go on bed rest while I worked at Disney, had to leave that and, you know, kind of went, had different experiences working for different, uh, very demanding producers in Hollywood and until I, I had to retire out of that because it was really too stressful being a, a mother and working in entertainment. So I know that Pat has Pat has said that he feels this work is the most important thing he's ever done, and I want to ask about that in a minute. But what about for you, Romy? What how, how do you feel about what your organization is doing? I couldn't agree more with Pat. I've never. I feel like everything I did, including that walk across the Fox lot to today, led me to doing this, connecting people, connecting young people to opportunities you know, getting connected to Pat. I mean, everything, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to be doing this. It feels like, it truly feels like a, a calling and I'm, I'm good at certain things. I've learned, had to learn a lot of other things, which I also enjoy, but I, I just feel so lucky to be doing this work. And for Pat, you've been an educator, a coach, a businessman, and this means what to you? Uh, it's just the culmination of a lot of things, but the common thread for me working in sports and TV was being a model and mentor me or a teacher, if you will, to younger people from the very start, I was in management and my biggest thrill was not the biggest sale or the biggest year of revenue, but, uh, seeing someone develop starting as an assistant and ending up as a senior vice president. So. I always knew in the back of my mind that I would be a teacher and a coach. And after those 23 years, I was fortunate enough that Rupert Murdoch bought out the company I was working for. And I was able to go to New Roads and become a teacher and a coach and a headmaster uh, for 12 years. So my life has been sports and TV. The sports part is great. Jobs are just content and process, as I, Rami hears me say. Uh, and the content when you work in sports is great because you're reading the sports section for work every morning. It's fantastic. The process, not so interesting. But I finally kind of got to my goal running a school and coaching teams and teaching in high school where I wanted to get. And a lot of that for me was because my own father did not have a high school degree, but he went to Brown uh, on the GI Bill. He was Phi Beta Cap. He went to Harvard Law School. He was near the top of his class at Harvard Law School, and then he taught at Harvard, and he taught here at USC Law School for 13 years. So my dad set a really great example for me in terms of being a teacher and a model and mentor. He he tutored a couple hundred different family friends for the bar, and they all right, passed. And he know. went back so and got his GED as a grown man in much the same way that Romy went back and got, got her <laughs> he bachelor's degree, right? Yeah. Clay, Claiborne Pell was his friend from Rhode Island, as in the Pell Grants, which we, we deal with now. And uh, and he did get his, before he died, he got his high school degree. It was very important to him. But uh, so that he was my role model. And then the 12 years and then running this program uh, at New Road School, uh, having some board oversight and seeing that these students foster homeless first gen undocumented a lot of times are the least served of the underserved. And, uh, you know, we famously agreed when we started this thing, we weren't going to work with overserved kids. We were going to work with underserved kids uh, because it's important to me as a Jesuit Catholic uh, that uh, the least shall lead, lead us, as we say, you know, so uh, these are the people I want to be around. And I would just echo what Rami said, Rami and I get so much more out of this than any individual student we've ever had. Isn't that an extraordinary phenomenon? And once you feel it, you really can't go back. I, I feel the same way about the volunteer work that I do with, with kids and, and also my work as a CASA. It is undoubtedly the most fulfilling 
work I've ever done. I mean, it's not even work. It's just, it's just, it's just fantastic. And, but I'm always curious, is it, why, why aren't more people arriving at that? And I want to ask you about that because I'm sure you, you're, you're both in a position where you're constantly asking people for things. So how do you, how do you spin it? Well, it's, um, we, we have many different spins, don't we, Pat? I mean, I think what, when, when <laughs> Pat and I first yep. met and we sat down, I said, Pat, get, let's, I'm, I had a yellow legal pad. And I'm like, let's go through everyone you know. <laughs> like, I'm going to take a list of everyone you know, because they're really going to be a value. And I'm going to share everyone I know, because we both share that. We have a deep bench of people in our lives and we have no problem leveraging our networks for good. We've done it. We were doing it informally for years. How can we help someone's, you know, a friend's kid get a job or get into a school, anything and everything. They called me Rami Rolodex. You know, our our older listeners will know what that was. I I just love sharing resources. I really, really do. (laughs) Not even in a transactional way. And when we we realized quickly that our list would be too long, we had to start with let's start with the students and what they need, and then let's dig into our our you know shared rolodexes. But I think both Pat and I knew that we could seed the network, but that at the to keep this growing and going, we had to take this beyond ourselves, and that's I think a, a key component of our program. It's not only about us; it's about bringing, as you said, how how do we do it? But it, it's bringing people into the network to open their networks to people outside their networks. So picture the visual of that. But uh, we, the way we spin it with some people is we have a student who's interested in nursing. And I was just with a friend who's a nurse. And I said, hey, I was just with Edgar, who's at UCLA. Would you talk to Edgar about your experience as a nurse? And we do that with anyone and everyone. And it's easy for us. Some people say no. It's hard for us to hear, but <laughs> most people say yes. And one of our, our newest board members said to us about what we do, it's the shortest. She said, I just wanted to make impact. And I wanted to find the shortest distance between me and impact and ready to succeed is that. You give us the opportunity to connect with people. We get to share our expertise. You're not asking us to do things we don't know how to do. And it just can grow from there. People get become more involved. They be you know they support us financially. They give our students opportunities at their companies. They show up at Project Dorm Room, which you mentioned the idea of moving kids into dorms. We di- I didn't I hadn't thought about that as an issue, and we were lucky to meet someone who was doing a program providing dorm room supplies at UCLA. And that woman, Tan Schuster, has become a board member of ours, and Project Dorm Room, as it's now called, has become a big program of ours. So I guess as, as time has gone on, we've seen more needs and found other ways to s- satisfy those needs with existing programs. We, we really try not to invent the, reinvent the wheel. Pat, anything to add to that? Yeah, just that, you know, people who do this work, uh, it doesn't pay that well, as it turns <laughs> out. Amazingly, it doesn't. Out, I'm, I'm <laughs> no. In fact, it maybe really it costs you. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, in my case, that's the case. Uh, so I'm always thinking of this as, as situational and ego, you know, that you have to be in a position where you can dedicate your life to these underrepresented students. You have to be able to afford it. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is ego. I meet so many people here on the West side of Los Angeles, uh, very successful investment bankers, but you can't convince me that an investment banker who's worth a hundred million dollars really needs to keep being an investment banker. Why is that person still working 12 hours a day when they have $100 million in the bank and they have four houses and they go to Europe every summer? And that ego part of it is really interesting to me. And we're not saints. We're just social workers, really. But I always wonder about those people with that expertise where they're becoming a model and mentor for our individual students by talking about themselves. They're talking about their own backgrounds and what they've accomplished and what they've done. And a lot, most people like to do that. So that's not, that's not hard to sell. To get people really truly involved is a bit of a hard sell. And I really, I don't know why. Yes. Uh, I, I think it's always a challenge. You know, with the group that I work with on Saturdays, Peace for Kids, they have a really good retention rate for their volunteer, um, 
uh, community, but it's still a, a huge challenge. You know, it's it's to to get outside yourself on a regular basis and say, what can I do today that is not for me, but is for someone else. This brings me to the question I've started to ask my guests is, what values do you think about? And what did, how, how were you raised in terms of values? And how, is, how has that changed as you have become an adult and the work you're doing? Did you ever, like, I'll give you an example for myself. I didn't think about values when I was little. I'm sure we had values in my family, but we didn't discuss values. We, I think uh, my father expected us to have integrity and conscientiousness. I guess those are values, but nobody said the word value, right? My mom uh, had other values. She wanted us to speak well and to behave appropriately. And, and um, it turns out now she also wants us to be kind and compassionate, but that's after a long life. But she, she raised 10 kids. I think it was pretty rough for her for a while. So yeah, I come from a family of 10 and uh, it was just chaos. So, uh, uh, and, and and I also actually understand what it's like to get very little support because I was at the bottom end of a family. I had a lot of help from my brothers and sisters, but in the end, it's like you're it's just like you're in it for yourself. Like figure out how how am I going to do that? I don't know. I'm going to pretend or I'll, I'll muddle through it. But anyway, just to get back, so can, can you tell me and either one of you to start what 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 value means to you? If and if you think about them. I think like you, I wasn't, I didn't think a lot about values. I too was raised to be a, you know, a good, kind, caring person, but I, I don't really, again, I don't, my parents didn't have a lot of time to be philanthropic or resources. So while I was raised in a fairly reformed Jewish household, I, I maybe I got some of the kind of tikkun alum <laughs> via osmosis by being a, a little kid at the West Side Jewish Community Center daycare. Right? Can, can I, you explain that that concept for me? I know it, but I bet my listeners don't. And could you say it again for me because I never say it correctly. I think it's tikkun alum, and I'm literally going to have to look it up. But I mean, for me, it means you know giving back. And I mean, I I, I go to a temple where where social justice is really at its core, and that's about fighting for for the rights of others, fighting for what is right. <laughs> which I guess is somewhat subjective, but it really is a, it really is the the concept of giving back and giving of. And I think very similar to Pat's Jesuit philosophy of that is so, so important. And I'm doing my best to impart that to my children who are now older and grown. Um, but I don't think you can, I've modeled it, thank God, but I can't make them do it. I, I'm I'm seeing my children kind of take it in and and act upon it in their own ways, but it's such an interesting question because I don't I I wasn't explicitly raised with specific values. And you, Pat? Yeah, for myself, you know, again, I come back to uh, being a man or woman for others, which is our Jesuit motto. You know, is is what I live by. But I think of my own family, and there were five of us, which isn't quite ten, but there was still chaos in our family. Okay, my dad would say that's a good start. <laughs> And uh, my dad was the oldest of eight and my mom was the youngest of seven. And so my aunts and uncles thought, well, what's wrong with you? Only five kids. Same thing. Same, same idea. But I think what it was at the root of it was the uh, greatest generation post-war and the whole thing in our family revolved around modesty. And, and the prevalent saying in our family was, uh, if you can't listen while you're talking. And if you came home to the dinner table and, and said, I, I scored 25 points in a basketball game today, you would get shoved off the reservation. You would get sent to your room, you know. So, so I think it was about modesty and, and being a man or woman for others. It's just a really simple idea. My mom was the same way. My mom was head of everything, head of the PTA, head of this, head of that. I've been on 21 boards. My brothers are very, very involved in nonprofit work. Uh, and they do anything for anybody. So uh, I think it was just a prevailing ethic that we had to live by. And I've ended up there. I, did, I certainly didn't start there, but I've ended up there. So if you if you had to think about, if you think of somebody listening right now and who is not involved, what would you say to them to hope to get them involved? 
even and not necessarily about money, but just really like showing up. I know that you that's what you do regularly. But for someone you don't know, let's say if you're not you're not asking from a friend. Well, I think the recognition about the idea of this permanent underclass is for real, regardless of your political orientation or, or your religious or whatever it is, that these people are the least served of the underserved. Now, when you work in a school, I'm, I'm, I was always struck about parents who would come in and say, uh, what, what, I can't do anything for the school. Uh, what can I do? I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm a housewife. What can I do? And I would say, can you read to a three-year-old? Do you read to your own kid? And they'd say, well, of course I do. I do that every day. And I said, well, you can come to my school and do that every day. How about that? And that's how, that's the first step. And invariably, you get people say that very first thing, well, what can I do? What can I do? Well, you can do something really simple. You can talk to a student for 30 minutes about what it's like to be an architect. And, and that maybe that's where it begins and where it ends. So people all over this country, all over this world, it's such a myriad of opportunities to get involved in what we call nonprofit. And I think a lot of times um, we've chosen this because they're young people and, and I'm an educator and I want to work with young people. That's my thing. But I think you have to pick an area uh, to get involved in. I think it's important to think about the elderly. I think it's important to think about the disabled. It's obviously important to think about homeless people. And so there are all kinds of opportunities to get involved and not 50 hours a week, not not as a career, not quitting your job as a banker and becoming a, a social worker with Rami and I. I mean, you know, I don't really advocate for that. But there, there's always something to do if you really gave it some thought and you thought simply about it. Rami, you want to add to that? Yeah, I, w- I would. I do think the easiest way in is through the individual students. And again, looking at what you br- what you've done and talking about that. It's very, very simple. So it could be a half hour conversation. I mean, we, we went into this knowing that one caring person can make all the difference in a young person's life. You, I'm sure, know that from your experience as a CASA and just doing the work that you do. Um, I also would want people to know that it's that small act is part of a much bigger picture that we're helping manage. And that's kind of the good news. It's And that's that's a hard part of our work to manage all the people who, there are a lot of people who want to sort of plug in. I think we're really good at making reciprocal relationships and connections. So again, I'll know someone was a nurse and loves talking about nursing. So I'll connect them to a nursing student. I know someone's looking for a cause and we'll talk to them or, you know, maybe left a big job and is now looking for the next chapter. And We'll share what we're doing, and then they become a board member. We love connectors and super connectors who like to do what we do, but just is our th- it's thrilling to us and our superpower. Finding a, like a, an outlet to do what they didn't even realize was such a superpower is, is really thrilling. I mean, when we do find the people who want to connect, it's, you know, it's like a finding your partner. <laughs> it's, finding, it's like a, it's a relationship. Um, And people almost have to see it and feel it to believe it sometimes. You know, so in in the very name of your organization is ready to succeed. So succeed, succeed. It's, uh, but I'm sure the kids fail too, right? So has that ever happened? Have you felt you couldn't get through to somebody or not help them succeed? Well, it's never going to be a hundred percent success rate. I mean, when you think about, I want to say three percent, still four percent of all foster youth graduating a four-year school, that's twenty-five foster kids in a room, and only one's going to graduate college. So, it's it's not a pyramid of failure, but it's a pyramid of real difficulty. And so, you have to always keep that in mind. I go back to a time where we had a very brilliant student at USC. And she received a Fulbright. Uh, we've had several kids get Fulbright. And I believe she's at Columbia Law School, Rami now, or Berkeley Law School. Anyway, the same day that we heard that we had a student at her school at USC on suicide watch, a young woman from Florida who had had all kinds of problems. I mean, has really come around. But you have that level of success 
that student, really bad foster background, gets gets the Fulbright, and then you get the student who ran away to USC from her abusive household in Florida, and is in suicide watch. So this was a hard thing for Rahi to understand that you can't really save everybody, <laughs> and not every single one of your friends is going to give you ten thousand dollars or whatever it is. Um, so you know you have to go with the greater good now. People on the outside would say to us, well, what about the other 96%? What are you you doing for foster youth? Uh, When 96% of them, uh, 25% when they uh, come out of the system are going to be homeless, Uh, 50% are going to be underemployed. There are all these horrible statistics. And we have to say that we're we're creating models and mentors and leaders, and that that's what we do. And Going forth, they're going to lead their people and they're going to lead the society. So, and it's all we can do. Uh, we can't address the 35,000 foster youth in LA County, but we found a segment, a tunnel that we can go through successfully. And yes, please go ahead, Ronnie. Well, I was just going to say, I'm care- we're careful about the word save because we, you know, we, we are, we are not saving and we're careful. We use it. I mean, it comes out because, um, but we are, I think we've realized that we the, the, the students have to meet us halfway. We can only kind of help them rise to the level that they are capable of because of their, it's not just their motivation and their talent, it's because of also the obstacles in their paths, whether it's their trauma, their, you know, family members that are, that are, that exist, that I didn't realize there could be so many family members for people who didn't have, in my mind, family. I think it was. It's been a very a hard and long lesson, which I'm continuing to learn. That each student's different. Like you learn about one student, and you learn about one student. Like you can't necessarily take every lesson and apply it, um, which means you're back to square one. Sometimes I have to say, our first less than successful story was devastating for me. It was. I just thought, oh my, well, what did we do wrong? How could we not do this? And not realizing there was so much I didn't know about. But, but again, we, we kind of try to meet the students where they are, do what we can, enhance our program as we can, bring in partners, because we cannot do this alone. And like Pat said, we just, we do our best. Right. So when that happened, you didn't uh, cower uh, and lick your wounds and hide. You, 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 did you have a hot wash and say, okay, let's, let, let's figure out <laughs> what went wrong or what it, I mean, even if you can, right? Because sometimes you, you can't even figure out uh, there isn't enough information. Um, I think I think it was very clear at that point that the 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 mental health aspect of what we were doing wasn't enough. Yeah, exactly. And that 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 could be overpowering. So we didn't just move on to the next one, so to speak. But we did reevaluate the idea that there were issues on the sides of these students that we. Uh, couldn't, and it was something I had to learn in my previous program, working with the high school students who end up going to Stanford and can't hack it there because of mental issues. So that set us on a path where we, we had to, to the best we could do, we're not psychotherapists, we're just connectors and work in, the, work in a career program. So we had to realize that that was a, a huge part of it and that we had to do something about it. And so at that point, we brought in uh, some uh, uh, therapists, volunteer therapists who are helping us, as well as an actual company that gives us a terrific pro bono rate. And we, and we also, and I'm so glad you said that, because it really is, I think every student we've had challenges with, or they've had challenges where they had to leave the program, it all comes, it really all came down to mental health issues, always whether it was a psychotic break, which I'd never seen before, and now I realize I've seen several, or just the you know trauma just constantly coming up in success, which again was really surprising. We're thinking, oh, you're graduating college, and now we know why in so many ways it's, as Pat says, the best day and the worst day. Also, the psycholo- what's going on psychologically as, as these young people move towards success, it, there's so much fear, and that it's just not all good. And that, that is a constant struggle for us, I think. And in addition to bringing on the therapist, which was so important, we, we brought in trauma-informed coaching for our volunteers and for our staff. I, mean, I, I 
and did not you ask winging it yes <laughs> winging it to the point where I'd be crying in my car I'd be talking to someone who's now our board chair he'd be crying in his car we just were in over our heads so I mean Pat was thank god calmer more you know experienced heads prevailed <laughs> but it, it's been quite a journey learning about the real challenges that our students have faced and continue to face so you started with uh, five or six kids, right? And now you've you've helped serve over 500, I think you said, Pat? We're, we're up around 500, including the first-gen scholars as well as the foster scholars, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I got to remember to say scholars because I really like that you do that, right? <laughs> right? They're not kids. Well, they're not foster kids. They're not at-risk kids. They're not problem kids. They're scholars. We slip once in a while. It's only given our because of our ages. We say kids once in a while. It's, but they're, we call them scholars or our students. Yeah. But, I, but I do think it does help. We really try to say scholars and we try not to say foster youth because we know a foster experience is just an experience. But, but it's sometimes kids, when you ask about how you bring people in, you say, you have kids. <laughs> these are kids, like your kids. You know how you help your kids? We want to help these kids as in the same way. So I think that's the only time where it's actually with the right audience appropriate. I'd be curious to hear what what the scholars slash kids feel when they hear us say kids. That might be something we go back and ask them. So I want to ask you one last thing that I ask all my guests and I'm going to, if you can think about it for a minute, but what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Yeah, I think along those lines, talking to the students and they say, well, I didn't go to this party because I didn't know anybody. And I would say, I wouldn't have gone either. And they look, you know, I'm the big, funny Irish grandfather, you know, to them, you know, that's really my role. And so I would say to them, well, I wouldn't either because I have severe social anxiety. And no one knows it except for me. And I think I might be saying it. I'll be 68. I might be saying it for the first time in public. And Rami's shocked. Well, you're the big, friendly, Irish, funny Irish guy, you know. And everyone does. Everyone doesn't want to go to that party. I say to the students, no one wants to go to that party not knowing anybody. Now, the Irish solution, obviously, is to have a couple drinks before you go and loosen up. (laughs) You know, you'll get to know everybody. And Rami's been with me where she's seen me do that. You know, I'm to blame for that. But the one thing I want everyone to know that I'm finding out about the world is that everyone has social anxiety and to break through it, it takes some courage. And so once again, I do not worry about our students academically. I do not worry about their placement. They're going to make it. They're going to be okay. But I do worry about what comes down to social anxiety and, and what we would call imposter syndrome uh, as it relates to these students. And as it relates to my, me and my social circle, maybe there's a lot of uh, imposter syndrome going on. Pat, thank you for sharing that. It, it did surprise me when we went to an event where Pat didn't know anyone. And I assumed Pat was the most social person and he is the most social person with people he knows. And I was thinking, why are you not talking to anyone? <laughs> What's going on? So that was very helpful. Um, you've set the bars with both of you is very high. I don't, I mean, maybe it's similar. I'm an, a super extrovert, so I, I enjoy social situations. I, I definitely have anxiety when I don't know anyone, but I definitely have my fair share of imposter syndrome. And I think given my, I don't think most people know about my upbringing. You know, we have a younger staff I and mean, Pat and I are, are the older white founders and, um, I think there's some assumptions that we come from a lot of privilege and it's been easy, but I think one thing people wouldn't know is that it hasn't been easy and that I think being an only child is, was not a good, great experience, just such a solitary experience and that I had to do so many things on my own. And I'm truly, by working in a program that is so focused on mentorship and relationships and connection, I'm getting to, is this when people cry on the show? <laughs> must be what happens. No, I mean, I'm really getting to, you know, create what I didn't have. And so I think that's what people don't know. That's really well said. <laughs> Always get me to cry. Well, that's very moving. And I'm, um, I'm sure that's 
part of why your work is so successful. You know, I, I, uh, I do believe, and maybe this is the reason why I always ask this question, and I just, this is just occurring to me right now, that I do think that people, uh, that overcoming obstacles is often a path to truth. And I think both of your examples are, mm. uh, are, are, are just a testament to that. And I guess. Well, we, we tell them, we tell them all the time, you know, the, the road to success that doesn't have bumps on it is not going anywhere. Mm. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. But again, that transference to people like us, Rami and myself, where they just presume everything was always okay. And it wasn't, we all know that it's just my favorite thing. My dad ever said over and over again was nobody rides for free. And we have to kind of, uh, convey that to our students. And you're exactly right uh, that, that the road to success has bumps on. Is there anything else either one of you would like to add? Uh, Ron, you know, I was talking to the, the wonderful young Joshua who we met last week at UCLA. And I gave him my card and I said, call me anytime and I'll, we'll go to lunch and we'll talk about what you're doing. So he got up the gumption a week later, he followed orders and he called me at home. And uh, he said, you had said that maybe we could go to lunch. And I said, yeah, I'll go to lunch with you anytime. Next week, week after, whatever you want to do, I'll come, I'll come meet you and we'll go to lunch. And in all my time of doing this, working with thousands of kids, this response I never had. He said, well, why would you do that? And he, he stumped me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, what? so I turned it around and I said to him, well, do you like me? I mean, did I make a good impression with you? He said, uh, Mr. McCabe, you can call me Pat. <laughs> you made an incredibly good impression. That's why I'm calling you. I mean, you worked in sports and I want to work in sports and you played basketball and I played basketball and we have all these things in common. I said, well, yeah, well, let's get together and talk about it. <laughs> he goes, well, I still don't understand why, but I'll see you next week. And so this kind of equivalency amongst humans is really important. I'm just some person, he's just some person, and there's an equality to that. And these foster youth didn't ask to be have a foster background, to be so unlike so many mainstream students. And uh, But at the end, I come back to this, this human equivalency of one-on-one, -on -one, and I th finally kind of convinced Josh that we were equivalents, that, that, that I'm 68 and he's 21. <laughs> You know, whatever else, but we're still just in this world together and everyone's in this world together just trying to figure it out. And I just want to add that, like Pat said, we can't handle, we, we can't solve the bigger issue that we're, we see with 35,000 foster youth in LA County, but we are focusing on one area and we do see this high failure rate with foster youth, I mean, with transition age foster youth as being an, a solvable problem. If if there's a formula that or a recipe for what student what young people need to to thrive you know whether it's mentors or financial support or housing you know basic needs to all the way to the career piece it's a solvable problem like there are people to plug into each one of those buckets and i that's i think what keeps us going and keeps us expanding our network and asking people to expand their networks because it's a solvable problem. It's a bit of a management issue, a logistics issue, but the people are there, the students are there, the opportunities are there, all the resources are there. We just have to keep connecting the dots. And I think that's what's so exciting about the work we do. And, and that's where there are so many opportunities for other people to get involved. I, I, I think it's man, management and organizational, as our uh, mutual friend Paul Fries would say, okay, they're there may be a thousand or so court-appointed special advocates, so we need thirty-four thousand more of them. How are we going to get them? That's right. And Paul Fries, Paul Fries thinks that way. He's like, "How, Pat? Come up with a plan where I recruit thirty-four thousand more models and mentors who become court-appointed special advocates, CASAs." So the resources are all there. I, I'm, I'm not. We're incredibly optimistic about the resources. It's just organizing them and managing them that we're everyone's struggling there. But we think we're getting close to a model that's really scale that hopefully can be scalable. You know, where every student in school can have this access to people and career opportunities simultaneous to their academic opportunities. I mean, there's just so many ways to bring schools as partners in, to bring public 
dollars in, you know, we are getting a, a great grant to provide scholarship money. That's our first big public funding. So the mon the money's there, the people are there, the partners are there. We just have to piece it all together. And one at a time. How do you do it? Not 34,000 at a time. We do it one student. We think about recruiting 100 more at a time. Yeah. But we really do it one at a time. One, one starfish at a time. One starfish exactly. at a time. Yeah, the woman on the beach, and she's throwing the starfish back in the ocean, and there are thousands of them. And a guy says, well, what are you doing? You'll never be able to throw 5,000 starfish back in the ocean. She said, yeah, but I can do it one at a time. That's nice, Pat. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I think just, we appreciate your time. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, all right, thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Rami and Patrick, for taking the time to do this interview. What you're doing with Ready to Succeed is phenomenal. And you two are giving back in a huge way by providing the resources for these young men and women to succeed. So. Really, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing what you do. Next week, join us for Taiji Charity, founder of Kids in the Spotlight. And since 2009, Kids in the Spotlight, or KITS, has created over 85 films with more than 850 youth impacted by foster care. Join us next week for Taiji Charity. Thank you for listening, and be well. If you or someone you know is harming themselves or thinking about harming themselves, Go to crisistextline.org. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.